Oh great, here we go. John 18. The long journey to the Gospel of John. And I don't know about you, but I can see the cross. Still a little faint. But week after week, the cross of Christ is becoming clearer and clearer. And I can make it out. And we are getting nearer and nearer to Calvary. This passage of Scripture, particularly the, the topic of study, is a very personal one for me. Um, God used Romans 5 to save me, but God used Matthew 26 to sanctify me. Matthew 26 being the account of Peter's denial of Christ. John 18, 12-27 is another account of Peter's denial so it's a very personal passage of scripture. Um, it is God has used it powerfully in my heart to cause me to grow as a believer. Uh, my first six years as a Christian, if you were to ask me what adjectives I would use to describe my character, my my heart, my first six years, I mean honestly, I would use these adjectives. I would say I was selfish. Proud, self-confident, boastful. Some of you uh, knew me in those years and you guys are nodding your heads, you know. Brash. I walked with a swagger. I did. I was so eager to preach. I would preach in the pulpit and preach at people every opportunity I got. I was eager to lead, wanted to lead people even though they didn't want me to lead. I led them anyways. I gave others counsel and advice when they weren't seeking it. I was very opinionated. I want I want everybody to know what I thought about everything in life and godliness. I, I thought I knew everything, and pride permeated so much of my character and personality. I mean, I was, you know, the maybe the worst kind of Christian. I was a selfish Christian. Maybe the worst kind of husband. I was a proud husband. Maybe I was the worst kind of pastor. I was an arrogant pastor. Um. Then I studied Matthew 26. I studied the life of Christ week after week, humiliated by the example of Christ, and God set me up. When I, when I studied Matthew 26, and looked at Peter's denials, in that week of studying Matthew 26, and that Sunday when I preached Matthew 26, I was there. I, it was night for me. It was cold. Um... I was standing with Peter, warming himself with the fire. I saw with my own eyes Christ being tormented by uh, his accusers and the soldiers that were surrounding him. I saw firsthand um, Peter denying Christ three times. And as Peter looked across the courtyard, and for the th- when he denied the Lord for the third time, the rooster crowed. He looked across the courtyard and saw Christ's eyes and remembered Christ's words, Today you will disown me three times. I mean, I was there. And it reminded me of the courtyard of my own denials, of how proud I was, and how repeatedly I denied the Lord. I had recounted in my own mind all my uh, victories of obedience, all my accomplishments for Christ, But in that courtyard, I was reminded of my repeated failures as a Christian. And I saw, figuratively speaking, the eyes of Christ reminding me, and exposing to me my own corruptness, my own vileness, my own brash arrogance before Him. And um, that was a turning point of my life. In terms of my sanctification, in terms of my maturity, in terms of my character, my conduct as a Christian, husband, as a pastor, I've never been the same. This, um, this story of Peter Sinai was the weed killer that went to the root of pride in my heart. You know, before I was kind of just cutting out the top edges of the weeds of pride so that people wouldn't notice this so clearly, but Peter's denial of Christ went to the root of my heart and to a great degree 
dealt a strong blow to my pride. My pride is still here. My selfishness, I still battle it. But Peter's pride, Peter's denials, that story has helped me greatly, assisted me greatly in growing in this area. God gave me so much grace. It was there that God produced, began to produce a true spiritual fruit in my life. It was no longer just about good sermons or evangelism, no longer about leading and no longer about ministry and you know how long I've the quiet time, how long I prayed, or how many mem- mem- verses I memorized. Um, Christianity became for me um, a journey into uh, humility, journey into um, Christ likeness and true holiness. Six years ago, or seven years ago, God broke my heart with this story, gave me new affections for Christ. Edwards calls them uh, broken-hearted affections. And I want to read to you uh, these beautiful words by Jonathan Edwards. You know, I read this years ago and read it again recently. And these words sum up, I mean, I believe in these words. This is, this summarizes my aspirations as a Christian. This is my heart. This is what I'm pursuing. I mean, I love this. After reading this just Maybe two weeks ago, Surin was falling asleep. I read it to her again and again with excitement. Surin, this is my heart. This is what I believe. This, this is what I want to pursue with all of my life. This is what Edward said. All gracious affections that are a sweet order to Christ and that fill the soul of a Christian with a heavenly sweetness and fragrancy are broken-hearted affections. A truly Christian love, either to God or to man, is a humble, broken-hearted love. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope. Their joy, even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble, broken-hearted joy. Leaves the Christian more poor in spirit, more like a child, and more disposed to a universal lowliness of behavior, end quote. Oh, I love those words. Oh, if those words could be a part of who I am, a part of how I live, my joy would be a broken-hearted joy. My desires would be a broken-hearted desire. That my life would be marked by broken-heartedness because of the glory of Christ and my utter sinfulness, my utter depravity, oh, that all of us will become more like children disposed to a universal lowliness of behavior, that we would not walk with a swagger, but we would all, you know, walk with a limp. I remember that's where I got that idea from Peter after his denials rest of his life walked with a limp his heart was broken by God when he saw his own pride oh that we would all have broken hearts and walk with a limp a very personal study and as I was studying this week I was afraid I don't want to use the pulpit to talk about myself I don't want to use the pulpit to share my ideas at all I fear that it might go that route I just want to preach the text. I, I want to stay out of this sermon because the scripture and scripture alone leads us to the valley of vision. And the scripture and the scripture alone produces in us such sweet fruits. I beseech you that if your heart is full of selfishness, marked by pride and self-love, if you see in yourself arrogance and self-confidence and brashness, I permeate how you interact with your family and friends and co-workers. With eyes open, hearts full of faith, let's meditate on this portion of Scripture, study it together. I am confident it will be so sweet to you. The Word of God, you read it with faith, will break your hearts and cause you to have broken-hearted affections for Him. Let's go to the passage, 
John 18, 12 through 27. It is really interesting. This passage in John 18 contains three dramas occurring at the same time. Three dramas. All three dramas have tremendous significance on their own. Yet, John doesn't separate them. John doesn't deal with each drama separately. But he interweaves them together. He, he, he mingles them together. These three dramas depict, first drama is the glory of Christ. Second is the evil of man's sinfulness and hypocrisy. Third is the reality of the weakness of the disciples of Christ. The disciples of Christ. In a thematic pa- uh, fashion, we will deal with these dramas one by one. We will look at the glory of Christ. Look at the sinfulness of man. And then look at the reality of the weakness of the followers of Christ. Let's begin with the glory of Christ. Humble submission. The glory of Christ. Humble submission. We studied last week that the two of the Savior's perfections were prominently displayed in His betrayal and arrest. His dignity. He didn't cower away. He didn't run away and hide. He wasn't afraid and frightened. No, he ran to his enemies and met them standing up. And when he stood up and said, I am, they were the ones who fell on the floor. We saw the glory of Christ's courage and the weakness, the cowardice of man and Judas and the soldiers coming at the Prince of Peace with clubs, weapons, looking, looking for the light of the world with torches. How absurd is that? We saw last week the lowliness of Christ. How He submitted Himself to the will of the Father. When He was in Gethsemane praying three times, asking the Father, can this cup be taken from me? And once the answer was given, He prayed no more. And He completely submitted Himself to the Father's will. We see, we saw His immeasurable superiority over all who surrounded Him his foes, and even his friends. We continue to see that in the next passage. Actually, in the next verse, verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews, John says, arrested Jesus and bound him. Arrested Jesus and bound him. Now in verse 12, that first word ought to be translated, therefore, not so. The word, therefore, because it explains verse 11. It rightly uh, continues from verse 11. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Having rebuked Peter for offering resistance, he bowed to the Father's will. Therefore, they arrested Jesus and bound him. The only reason they were able to arrest Jesus, the only reason they were able to bound Jesus, because Jesus voluntarily submitted himself to the Father, relinquishing his rights as God in flesh giving up, surrendering His power. Because of that and that alone, therefore they were able to arrest Him. Therefore they were able to bound Him. They arrested Him and bound Him like a common criminal. We do not doubt that they bound Him with heavy chains, that He was handcuffed. Tradition says, quote, they bound him with such cruelty that the blood started out at his fingers' ends and having bound his hands behind him, they clapped an iron chain about his neck and with that they dragged him along, end quote. They dragged him like a common criminal. And we see here the glory of Christ. The amazing condescension of our Lord. 
We treat it, we see him treated, we see him treated with contempt. It's an insult. It's an affront to who he is. He only had to command and at once his enemies would be destroyed. And yet, he agreed. He condescended. He willingly chose to be treated as a villain and did not resist. As meek as a lamb is led to the slaughter, so our Lord, meek as a lamb, went to his slaughter. Bishop J.C. Rao, and you guys know by now I'm using his commentary and just enjoying, enjoying so much of this esteemed pastor, this godly man, and his words. And he says, never let us forget this particular, peculiar beauty. So when we picture Christ, one of the pictures of Christ that we should have in our minds is him being arrested, bound, led away to his enemies. Never let us forget this peculiar beauty. When we read the wonderful story of his cross and passion, he was led away, Rao says, captive and dragged before the high priest, not because he could not help himself, but because he had set his heart on saving sinners by bearing their sins by being treated as a sinner, and by being punished in their stead. We see the, the glory of Christ's humble submission. The chains are unnecessary. What bound him was not the chains. Right? Samson broke loose the Philistines' chains. Christ is greater than Samson. What bound him was his humble submission to the Father, was his love for God, his voluntary decision to die on the cross as our substitute. John tells us, unlike the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that they led him to Caiaphas. John tells us something that the synoptics left out. That before they took him to Caiaphas, they first took him to Annas, verse 13. They first led him to Annas. He was the for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So here we see the evil of man, sinfulness and hypocrisy. And two characters represent the evil of mankind. Two men, Annas and Caiaphas. If you read the Gospels, these names are, should be somewhat familiar to you. Do a little background uh, study on these two men. Let's look at Annas first because Jesus was led away first to Annas. In John 18:19, Annas is called the high priest. In the Synoptic Gospel and John 18 as well, Caiaphas is called the high priest. Can there be two high priests? The Bible is clear in the Old Testament. No. Each year there's only one high priest. And he serves for a life term. He is the high priest of Israel until he dies. How can there be more than one high priest in Israel? According to God's design, this was not allowed except for the politics of that position during the time of Christ. Annas was indeed officially the high priest during the childhood years of Jesus but in the year of A.D. 15, he was forced out by the Roman government because they wanted, wanted the, the, the office of the high priest to be a puppet office. And they deemed Annas as too powerful to be used as a puppet. So, even though the Old Testament stipulated that the high priest must serve a life term. The Roman government stepped in as the occupation force and forced him out and appointed others to, to, to be in that position. So technically, they weren't legitimate. Annas is, in God's eyes, the official high priest. But because they were occupied by Rome, they had different high priests. 
seven succeeded Annas. Five of them were his sons. And Caiaphas was his son-in-law. So we see here that other men were playing the role as the high priest of Israel. But the real man in power behind this position was Annas. So who was the puppet? Right. Annas was the one ruling, and even Caiaphas was a puppet in his hands. He was running the show. You've got to ask, how did Annas have so much power? How did such nepotism take place? Well, in order to be a high priest, you need to do two things to gain this position during the time of Rome's occupation over Israel. You needed to kneel on the ground and kiss Rome's hem, showing allegiance to the government of Rome. And second, you need to come up with a lot of money. You need to, with corruption and bribery, and the highest bidder got the position, and time after time, guess who was the one that gave the most money to the Roman officials so that the man that Annas selected would be the high priest over Israel, five sons and his son-in-law. It was Annas, year after year. He was the highest bidder for this office. He was so rich that he just continued to buy the office of the high priest. He was not allowed because Rome set him apart. You're too powerful. So he went behind the scenes and through bribery appointed those he wanted to be in that position. Now, how did Annas make so much money? Annas earned his money by being in charge of the temple concessions. Temple concessions. So, in the temple of Jerusalem, there were concession stands selling things. And through, uh, through that, that means, through those means, he made money. And the illustration would be, uh, you go to a movie theater, and the theater ticket might be $10, but a small box of popcorn is $5. Uh, you go to Costco and buy for $0.10, cents, but here it's $5. And a small Diet Coke, like six-ounce drink, is uh, you get it without ice, right? Uh, it's like $3. So where you singles out there when you go on a date, you know, you buy the big box of popcorn and you buy the big drink for your date. You know, the married folks, we have popcorn before. <laughs> we'll have popcorn after. It's so expensive, right? I mean, same thing, you go to Disneyland, a $2 burger and fries you can get, right? You go to Disneyland, it's like $7, six ninety-five. That's how movie theaters and Magic Mountain Disney that's how they make money. It's through the concessions. Well, same thing. Uh, they learned this from the Jewish temple, right? <laughs> that's where they got it from. So in the temple grounds, on the, ch- the court of the Gentiles, uh, they had set up all these booths to sell uh, animals and to exchange money. Now, these pilgrims would come on Passover, in one year, Josephus estimated a quarter of a million uh, animals were sacrificed in one weekend. So all these pilgrims were obligated, they were commanded by the Old Testament to bring a lamb without defect, blemish, without broken bones, to offer on the altar in the temple. So of course they would bring it, and who would examine these animals to see if they were without blemish and defect? The priests. They were under the high priests. And of course, what would the priests say under the orders of Annas? They would say, this lamb does not qualify to be offered as a sacrifice to Yahweh. What are you talking about? I raised a sheep from birth without blemish. No, there's nothing. And they would find the defect. They would find the blemish and saying, you cannot sacrifice that, that animal here. right? We will not allow you to dishonor the Lord, disobey God in that way. So you must get rid of that animal. But we have this nice, fine animal, you know, for you because we know you, a discount price, right? Eight times what is being sold on the marketplace. You buy that one, that would not qualify either. This is the only one that's approved for sacrifice in the altar here in the the temple. And so these pilgrims would be taken advantage of. 
And that's how Annas made money. Same thing with exchanging money. They considered money that was exchanged elsewhere as not pure, would be defiling the temple. Only the money that was prayed over by the priests in the Gentile courts was approved for offering in the temple. And so they made money that way. And that's how Annas became so rich and he did not want to give up this position of high priest because for him, it was a money maker. Jews understood this. That's why they hated Annas. They hated him. The Talmud says of Annas, woe to the house of Annas. Woe to their serpents hiss. They are high priests. Their sons are keepers of the treasury. Their sons-in-law are guardians of the temple. And their servants beat the people with rods. The Jewish people knew they were taken for a ride. They knew he was not the real high priest interceding on the behalf of the people before Yahweh. They understood he was a corrupt, evil man doing, doing this only for monetary profit. And so when Jesus, the only one who had the courage to go into the court of Gentiles, and what did he do? He got a whip of cords and drove the traitors of animals out. He drove, overturned the tables and threw them out, those who were exchanging money. He did it twice in his ministry. The people were impressed. The people saluted. They applauded what he was doing, except for one family, and it's the family of Annas. They hated Christ because he was a threat to their business, to their opportunity of making money. So this is why Annas hated Jesus. This is why Annas was conspiring to, to kill and murder Christ at every opportunity. This is why Caiaphas, though he was saying all those things, the true powers that be was Annas behind the scenes, coordinating all these things, making this happen, that Christ would be crucified. Second one mentioned is Caiaphas. Verse 13, he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest of that year. He was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is how ludicrous it is. This is how absurd it is. When did Caiaphas say this? It's better for one man to die uh, for the nation, nation of the whole people. He said this in John chapter 11, right after Lazarus was raised in the grave. The most public miracle of Christ. Lazarus was dead for four days. He comes out in his grave's clothes and everybody sees this man has been sent by God. Even members of the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, attest, this is the Messiah. He is sent from God. And what does Caiaphas say? Oh, he should die. He needs to die. It's better that he dies than all of us suffer as a nation of Israel. I mean, Jesus just raised a man from the grave and his response is, we need to kill him. We need to murder him. In John 11.53 says, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. That was the response of Annas and Caiaphas because they knew Christ was against this uh, making of the Father's house from a house of prayer into a house of robbers. Therefore, their response was to conspire to murder him. So here we see in verse 19 and on, Annas questioning Jesus, and he is breaking almost every uh, legal law as it pertains to a legal trial in the nation of Israel. Jewish law said that when anyone was brought to trial, he could not incriminate himself. It was like the Fifth Amendment. You could not question him and have him incriminate himself, especially in a capital punishment trial. Annas doesn't care. He wants and he questions Jesus so that he would incriminate himself, so that he might testify against himself, so that he might be crucified that day. There was also a rule that there was never to be any striking of a prisoner. They violated that, that law. Another law that the end of the trial unto the execution, there had to be an interval of two days. From the trial to the execution must be an interval of two days. They broke that law. 
Another law was that a trial could not be held at night. Broke that law. Another law was that there must be, uh, in capital punishment cases, they must have witnesses, not one, but several witnesses who will testify to the man's guilt. They broke that law in Matthew 26. They brought together some witnesses to testify against Christ. There were false witnesses. They couldn't get their story straight. They couldn't agree with one another. So ultimately, what incriminated Christ was his own testimony that they twisted to get this judgment verdict of him being guilty of blasphemy. So in verse 19, Annas questions Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus questions him. Verse 20, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues, in public. I have not done ministry privately, in secret, hidden from anyone. I've done it openly. I've done it in the temple where all the Jews gather together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. What is our Lord doing? He's asking for witnesses. He's not trying to save himself, but he wants justice. He wants to expose the wickedness, the sinfulness of Annas and Caiaphas and the whole religious system of Israel. Where are your witnesses, Annas? This is not how how a trial is supposed to be conducted. In devastating words, he indicted Annas. They wanted to finish the trial and have Christ incriminate himself and Christ will not play their game. Well, when he had said these things, you know, they had no answer. They resorted to violence. Verse 22, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Outrageous behavior. Our Lord responded, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if I, if what I, if what I said is right, why do you strike me? It was an outrage to strike a prisoner, but Jesus calmly, with no anger, no vengeance, says, if I've done something wrong, where are the witnesses? If I haven't done anything wrong, why are you hitting me? This is so powerful. He was so calm, so dignified. He was in control in comparison to the frustrated soldier and the frustrated Annas. Annas was... uh, he was not successful in trying to indict Jesus. Verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So we've thus seen the glory of Christ's humble submission, the evil of man's sinfulness and hypocrisy in this absurd trial. But really the thrust of this passage is in the next section where we see the reality of the weakness of the disciples of Christ. This section tells us that even believers are weak as water without Christ. In John 13, 36-38, Peter boastfully declared, I will lay down my life for you. And yet, in the next passage, a few short hours later, we see Peter Denying the Lord three times. Now before we get to that passage, I want to set it up a little bit to what led Peter to deny the Lord three times. What led Peter to deny the Lord three times? Would you turn with me to Matthew 26, 31 through 35? And here we see um, four signs of Peter's weakness. It wasn't a momentary weakness on Peter's part here in the court by denying Christ. His pride, his boast, boast his arrogance, his self-confidence, these are um, inherent conditions in the heart of Peter that caused him to be so weak, culminating in his denial, denials of the Lord. In Matthew 26, 31, Jesus told him, This very night you all fall away on account of me. 
all fall away is the Greek word skandalizo, from where we get the word scandal. The word, the literal meaning of the word is setting a trap, snare, or a stumbling block. And our Lord's day was used metaphorically. Our Lord was saying, on my account, you will all stumble. Because of me, all of you will fall and fall away because of me. Telling them that they will all desert Christ. They will all deny Christ. While our Lord faced the cross with courage and valor, they will all run away with fear and cowardice. In verse 33, here we see the first sign of Peter's weakness, Peter's pride, self-will, his unwarranted confidence in his flesh. He said, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. That all is referring to the disciples. What is he saying? He's comparing himself with with the other apostles. Yes, these men, they'll fall away. I, Thomas, he doesn't really believe in you. Bartholomew, man, he's a flake. Right? You know, John, he's a tender guy. You know, he can't handle, you know, pressure. Right? He's always been that way. Right? Nathaniel, man, he's no good. But not me. They'll all fall away, but I never will. And look at that word, I never. I will never. What a promise. I will never fall away. Right? What pride. What arrogance. He overestimated his love for Christ and underestimated his own flesh. Have we ever been there? Have we said boastful things and had to eat those words and a few minutes later? 1 Corinthians 10.12 If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Be careful that you don't fall. Christ responded, I told you the truth. Jesus answered, this very night, before the rooster crows, before 3 a.m., you disown me not once, not twice, but three times, Peter. Peter declared, verse 35, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Here's a second sign of Peter's weakness. He disagreed with God's word. Here is Jesus talking. Here is God's Son, God incarnate, the sovereign, omniscient Lord speaking. And Peter is saying, you don't know my heart. You don't know me. You don't know anything. You're losing it, old man. You don't know what I'm, what I'm about. You don't know my courage, my steadfastness, my commitment. Even if I have to die, I will never disown you. This is the condition of our hearts. Often, isn't it? We read the word and we say the Bible is not true. But what does the Bible know? Oh, what does the preacher know? Oh, what does the Bible study leader know? Ask the Bible. But I'm different. I don't have to worry. I don't have to be so vigilant against temptation and sin. Trusting in our own flesh. Here's the second sign of Peter's pride, his weakness. Contradicting God's word to his face. Supreme arrogance. And look at the fruit of such arrogance. Verse 35. All the other disciples said the same. They all agreed, yeah, Jesus is wrong. He's right, 99%. But finally we caught him in an error. Right? Finally caught Jesus being wrong about something. They all, all agreed Jesus was wrong. Act of blatant insubordination. The next, next sign of Peter's weakness is seen in the next passage. Can we see ourselves in Peter's life? Can you see why... The Bible is a mirror exposing who we really are before God. Here we see Christ going to Gethsemane for three hours praying to the Father, treading sweats, intermingled with tears, with, with blood. And what is Peter doing? Peter sleeping. Peter sleeping. Third sign of weakness is lack of prayer. You know, you could, he said how he wanted to die for Christ, but he couldn't pray for one hour. Because he was so puffed in his own pride, so confident in his own flesh, prayer was an optional thing. It was not urgent. It was not important enough. I've said this many times and said it, said it again. Our prayer life is the barometer of our pride. It's the barometer. Our prayer life reveals how proud we really are. A prideful man does not pray. He does not pray. 
prideful man comes upon a problem, comes upon trial or struggle or difficulty or temptation, and he thinks, he plans, he schemes. He talks to himself. He trusts in his own flesh. He or she does not pray, has no prayer life, lives his or her life as a spiritual atheist, praying in public with many babbling of words, but in private, so full of himself or herself, does not pray to God. Core reason is pride. The fourth sign of weakness is seen in the next text. Peter, Judas comes and hypocritically kisses Christ and Peter is angry at Judas. See the self-righteousness there? It's not in the Bible, but I believe. If I'm wrong, I'll repent in heaven. But I believe Peter was going for Judas' neck. If I'm Peter, that's what I'll go for. right? If I had a sword and I saw a disciple, a man that I, you know, that I, I, for three years he worked alongside with, betray Christ and, and betray him with a kiss, I'd go for his neck in my sinful pride. And that's what Peter did, I believe. His self-righteousness. How could Judas do this? What a sinner. He denies and betrays the Lord in this way. And he takes out a sword. And going against God's will, seeks to protect Christ as if Christ needed His help. As if Christ needed His protection. What delusions of grandeur. What a wrong perspective of self to think that Jesus needed His help. Our Lord stops him and said, verse 53, Do you think I cannot call on my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? A Roman legion composed of 6,000 men. So more than 12 legions of angels would be in excess of 72,000 angels. In 2 Kings 19, an angel of God killed, slain 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Angels were warriors fit for battle. A single angel killed 185,000 soldiers. And Christ said, I can call on the Father and He will bring at my disposal 12 legions of angels. What are you doing, Peter, with that small dagger? With that butter knife? Right? What are you doing? I don't need your help. I don't need your protection. I'm not weak. You are weak. I'm strong. You are weak. I'm humble. You are full of pride. This was what occurred all before Peter found himself in the courtyard watching Christ being interrogated by by his enemies that's, these are all these, so Peter wasn't in a moment of weakness, denied the Lord. It was culminating, filled with pride. He was setting himself up because of his own sins. And so as he's warming himself, standing by the door, John 18 again, verse 16, verse 17, John 18, verse 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Now, no, it wasn't one of the male servants that asked him. It wasn't one of the temple guards. It wasn't a guy, it wasn't a Roman soldier with a sword in his hand asking Peter. It was a little servant girl. Right? It was like, maybe like Lindsay or Carol, somebody coming up to you. Hey, aren't you, weren't you with Jesus? And here's Peter's response. Right? I will never disown you, even if I had to die with you. He denies it to a little girl. I am not. Right? And in God's sovereign providence, who asks again? Right? They said to him, he denied it again a second time. God's providence. The third time, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Right? So he knows he was there. He saw you. You were the one that cut my you know, nephew's ear off, right? You are, did I not see you in the garden with him, he says. Peter again denied it at, at once a rooster crowed. 
in Mark, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 26:75, it says, When the rooster crowed, Peter remembered the word Jesus spoke, and before the rooster crows, you will disown me, deny me three times. And Luke 22:61, Luke recounts, and how does Luke know? Because Peter told Luke. Peter was uh, his source. So Peter told Luke what happened. And in Luke 22:61, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Their eyes met. Peter heard the rooster crow, remembered Jesus' words, and saw Jesus' eyes. And at that moment, he saw his own sin. And then, he went outside, and he wept bitterly. Wept bitterly. We see this famous disciple forsaking his master, acting like a coward. J.C. Rowell said, This fall of Peter is doubtless intended to be a lesson to the whole church of Jesus Christ. It is recorded for our learning. It is a beacon, mercifully set up in Scripture, so that we would not shipwreck our faith. It shows us the danger of pride and self-confidence. If Peter had not been so sure that although all denied Christ, he never would, he would probably never have fallen. It shows us the danger of lack of prayer. If Peter had watched and prayed when our Lord advised him to do so, he would have found grace to help him in the time of need. It shows us, not least, the painful influence of the fear of man. Few are aware, perhaps, how much more They fear the face of man whom they can see and the eye of God whom they cannot see. These things are written for our admonition. Let us remember Peter and be wise. Well, time does not permit us to go on further. But Maybe uh, five lessons that we glean from this sad fall of Peter. Number one tells us that believers are weak as water without Christ. Teaches us how important prayer is. It's not options of the Christian faith. It's a matter of survival. It's a matter of survival. It's difference between standing or falling as a follower of Christ. Secondly, it shows us the danger of self-confidence, the danger of pride, the danger of trusting in oneself. Thirdly, it shows us the disastrous influence of the fear of man the disastrous influence of the fear of man. There's two competing glories in our hearts. Are we going to fear God or fear man? Only two options. If we choose to fear God, we will not fear man. But if we choose to fear man, we cannot and we are not fearing God. Fourthly, this should prepare us against a prize. When our familiar friends fail in the crucial hour, it ought to tell us that sin is not a past tense experience. That Christians, we sin. And we sin greatly. And we will continue to sin. That what drew us to Christ was God's grace, not perfection. And that grace is not a past tense experience that we experience in our moment of salvation. No, grace is how we live. It was the grace that drew us to Christ. And it is by grace of God we stand and continue to follow Christ. We live by grace. We continue to receive forgiveness by grace. That God has saved us and saves us from sin. 
and forgave us and forgives us of our sin. It's a continual receiving of God's grace. And finally, it's a warning to us. 1 Corinthians 10.12 If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Are you standing on God's grace or are you standing on your own flesh? Your own commitment, your own pride, your own determination. Maybe humbly lean upon Christ considering ourselves the weakest of all believers so that we might stand in the grace of Christ and grace of Christ alone. Let me read to you Edward's quote again and pray a Puritan prayer to close our time. All gracious affections that are a sweet odor to Christ and that fill the soul of a Christian with a heavenly sweetness and fragrancy are broken-hearted affections. A truly Christian love, either to God or men, is a humble, broken-hearted love. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope. Their joy, even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble, broken-hearted joy, leaving the Christian more poor in spirit and more like a little child and more disposed to a universal lowliness of behavior. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, Thou hast brought us to the valley of vision, where we live in the heights with Thee, but in the depths with our sins. Hemmed in by the mountains of our sins, yet we behold Your glory. Lord, teach us. Help us to learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, and that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of clearest vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells. And the deeper the well, the brighter thy stars shine. Amen.